Hello and welcome. Uh, I'd first like to acknowledge that this show is being recorded on occupied Ohlone territory, also known as the Bay Area, California. Uh, this is the first Revolutionary Organizing Against Racism conference uh, podcast. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, the Revolutionary Organizing Against Racism conference, or ROAR conference, uh, started in 2017 during the anti-fascist movement to try and translate the street protests that were happening all over the U.S. into a more radical analysis about racism's key role in holding up our entire social structure, and that, was, and that it wasn't enough to oppose street-level white supremacy, but that institutions like ICE and the prisons are more efficient forms of holding out white supremacy, and that if you're anti-racist, we needed to turn the attention uh, into revolutionary politics. So since 2017, we've been holding public education conferences, flying people from all over the world to share their stories and analysis uh, about the struggles that they're in, in the hopes of building a network ready to meet the challenges ahead. Um, unfortunately, due to the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus, we canceled this year's conference. And like many resilient resistance movements before us, we've adapted to the current moment and offer this podcast. So the podcast is a chance for us to continue to share analysis about the struggles we are in from all over the world, and during these difficult times of COVID-19 pandemic, share the political terrain beneath our feet and understand how it's changing. <clears throat> uh, so before I introduce our first guest, uh, I'd like to make a few remarks to help kind of frame the conversation that we plan on having. So when the state of California called a shelter-in-place order on March 19th, uh, beyond kind of shaking my head at people hoarding toilet paper uh, and listening to the mumblings uh, of the beginning of a rent strike, uh, I wanted to know more in detail how to understand uh, what the current moment holds for us. Uh, in particular, what are radical understandings of this moment uh, and how are old power structures of race, class, and gender consolidating power right now? Uh, so in order to do that, I turned to medical anthropology for its insights, uh, mostly on epidemics across cultures and the different tools of analysis they use to understand our society's narratives about disease and the reactions to them. So a couple framing things is kind of what I found. Uh, the first is that disease and illness metaphors and narratives reflect and reproduce core values many of which support a society's social and economic structures. The main example that they use in medical anthropology is the example of the mechanical model of the body and the rise of industrial capitalism. Okay. Uh, another example that, they, that I'm pulling from currently uh, is the use of the word quarantine. So most people, they understand the term quarantine as like a medical term, it's a scientific thing that we all have to do in order to stop the spread of the disease. Uh, the history of the actual word quarantine comes from the mid-14th century and refers simply to the number 40. It was the amount of days that ships would have to wait outside of the port city of Ragusa uh, during the Black Plague to help slow the spread of the Black Plague. Uh, but the number 40 wasn't chosen for its like scientific validity. Uh, it was because simply the term before it they used was Trentino, which is 30 days. So it went from 30 to 40 days. And a lot of scientists speculate that the number 40 wasn't chosen uh, for its scientific purposes, but 
it's more for its relationship to biblical um, biblical stories. For example, Jesus fasts in the desert for 40 days. The Christian observation of Lent is for 40 days. And the reason that I pull this example is simply because uh, it's more related to our cultural context and how we narrate about disease than it is about uh, an objective sort of number. So the other thing that I think is important uh, are sort of like the levels of analysis that medical anthropology uses. Uh, and it's helpful for us to be able to tease out some of these differences because when I hear other people talk about it, there's a lot of conflation between like uh, the different levels of analysis. Uh, so to be clear, the first one that they use is uh, the microscopic level. So the observation of particular bacteria or virus, the releasing of toxins, the changing of microbiology in the human body, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the second level of analysis that they use is uh, epidemiology, which is the study of the disease at the population scale, the source of the disease, the means of transmission, the number of people who suffer from the disease, the morbidity rates, and how many people die, which are the mortality rates. Uh, the last level analysis that they use that I think is important for us uh, is the economic and political context, the narrative and the actions that the governments use, the response of people, the stratification of care, all of these other types of issues. Uh, and so for those of us who are concerned with revolutionary change, it is important to begin to understand the way hierarchical power is distributing death. Uh, today's guest will help illuminate the effects of COVID-19 in the black community. Uh, Zoe is the co-author of As Black as Resistance, Finding the Conditions for Liberation. They are also a PhD candidate in medical sociology at UCSF. Zoe also studies German colonialism uh, and genocide in general, and specifically of the Nama and Herero people. Zoe, welcome and thank you for joining us. Of course, thanks for having me. So, just to start out, uh, how are you viewing things, generally speaking, now? Uh, yeah, it's, I don't even know where to begin. It's, it's really messy. Um, as things were getting really bad, I guess I can kind of tell, like, kind of an international story. So, uh, as people were all starting to social distance, I was actually in Namibia, doing my uh, PhD work. And it was really interesting to see how borders come into play mm -hmm. um, when you look at the way that diseases were spread. So first of all, there was that whole conversation as Italy was getting hit really, really badly and other European countries were getting hit really badly. There was this confusion and this curiosity about why Africa was being spared, almost as though there was like like a confusion or an enthusiasm or like a some kind of fulfillment of a prophecy because Africa mm. is like the ground zero for infectious disease and this kind of racist um, public health imaginary. And so mm. uh, there finally there were cases that started coming to the continent. And if you, you know, were paying attention to who brought them, it was always either Europeans or people right. who were coming from Europe. And so it wasn't this, people were like, okay, well, are Africans like immune? And it's like, well, no, it's not that Africans are immune, but you have to look at this global regime of travel. Mm. Um, who is able to move around the world with ease? It's mm. Europeans and it's Americans. And when you look on the continent, it's like 
in order to travel to the UK, to Europe, to, to, to the United States, like Africans have to go through like pretty extensive visa processes yeah. and, you know, it kind of varies by nationality, but, um, the reason that it was spreading around the continent much more slowly was because Africans have much more limited ability to move, which we can think about, you know, colonialism, we can think about capitalism. And that was not, um, a part of these kind of narratives of disease spread and transmission early on. Um, there was a really good, uh, article that was written by a medical anthropologist, um, Adia Benton that talks about like border promiscuity and Mm. movement. Um, and this, yes, everyone is affected equally, but literally like who is kind of at the will of these regimes of travel, Mm -hmm. um, like who is waiting for these things to be brought to them. And it's, um, so that was kind of what I was looking at. And then there was the really weird conversations and emails I was getting from the embassy about airlifting or like getting people evacuated. And I mm-hmm. didn't realize that like refugees have to pay for their own flights or like eventually <laughs> have to pay back the governments for their own flights. I didn't know that. Yeah. So there was like one flight what? and we had an opportunity to catch this this charter flight with Peace Corps volunteers and we, it would only take us to Ethiopia. And then from Ethiopia, we would have to like find our own way back to the United States. Or there was this other flight where I think in total it was like $3,400 when like you can buy a round trip ticket from San Francisco to Namibia for like $1,300. So there was this really it was very interesting to see how the U S government is just where like other like European countries were like getting people out as quickly as they could. Yeah. The U S government was just like, well, if you don't leave now, like you're just going to have to be there indefinitely. (laughs) That's crazy. Um, So there was that, but now I'm back in the States and, um, you know, as expected, it is hitting, um, indigenous and like black and Latino communities particularly hard. Um, and where you have the, the surgeon general who was a Trump pick, you know, blaming, you know, having these really weird condescending racialized conversations about like, you got to stay inside, you know, for big mama, for abuela, for (laughs) all of these weird things. It's like, it's really interesting how we've gone from like everyone's in this together to like black people. It is like uniquely your responsibility for um, the virus spreading or not spreading when, you know, we have to have like a class analysis of this. Like uh-huh. we have to look and see like who, who become, who, who, who are the essential workers, right? Like who is a part of this like economic casted system where people, um, are working low wage jobs that do not permit them to socially distance or stay home. Right. Um, that's not a conversation we're having. We're just having this like weird, like more or less, as you were saying, like shamey conversation around Mm -hmm. either social distance or you are responsible for creating, um, these hubs for spread. Um, And it's just, it's really frustrating because if you look at all of a lot of these major metro areas, like black people are really taking, um, the hit, like are, are really the brunt of, uh, mortalities. Like apparently in like St. Louis County, almost every person who's died has been black in like Detroit. It's like 60%, um, like black people who've been dying and 
you know, this, this idea of being universally affected is completely false. And we have to understand vulnerability as running around these simultaneously, like race and class. Um, and then we're looking at like frontline workers and like care providers, um, in like medical structures, like also gendered lines, because like, what is the demographic of people who are like nurses? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, there's not nearly enough of that, um, in the commentary that's been had. Yeah. And I guess that's, that's one of the questions I kind of want to get more deeper into is a little bit about, uh, this idea that, you know, because it's a virus, because it's, you know, biologically based, and that that sort of like level of analysis that it's like an equalizing force, right? It's universalizing. Right. It's like, oh well, we all have germs. Germs affect us all equally, uh, and it seems to be the case that that that's not actually true. That the same way that our society is hierarchically structured is the same way that sort of uh, morbidity and mortality uh, are also distributed along those same hierarchical lines. Uh, yeah. Can you? Can you elaborate on that in the particulars uh, of like the black community in the United States? Uh, let's yeah. say, for example, like, uh, you know, in the prisons, obviously that that's like an insane struggle that's going on right now. But also just generally, like like you were talking about a little bit earlier, like in the major metropolitan areas. Yeah, um, I was reading something recently about I think it's either I forget where in New York City exactly but it's called like pollution alley and the rates of like asthma and other uh, respiratory illnesses are significantly higher because I think that they get all of the pollution from like LaGuardia airport. Um, So when there are certain illnesses that um, are immunosuppressant that make your lungs more vulnerable, um, like you're going to see, significantly higher incidences of respiratory illnesses even prior to COVID-19 in those communities because um, of the environmental conditions in which people live. And then we know that cities are structured in certain ways. We know about redlining that didn't permit Black people to live in certain areas. We know about segregation. We know about the creation of the suburbs. We know about how like municipal planning in cities has led to like really intense concentrations of non-white people in certain parts of the city, um, uh, compared to others. Uh, you've got, I mean, like, and then obviously, yeah, prison is, is prisons are like a really clear, um, a really clear example of the fact that, you know, we have this carceral system, we have the surveillance system, we have this, uh, racial capitalist system that is piping non-white folks, poor people, um, into prisons where they are not given sufficient, uh, health or like physical and mental health resources, where they are living in really close quarters, where they are in like environments that are like moldy and damp. Um, uh, so you're going to see like asthma, you're going to see allergies, you're going to see all kinds of things that are going to make people there immunosuppressed. You're going to see people completely unable to distance themselves from one another because they are confined to cells. Um, you see like heavy, like a lot of traffic in and out of, from like correctional officers that are like literally bringing the virus, like into the space where people can't escape. And there've been all of these really like horrible to see and, and, and read about like testimonies from folks on the inside that are just like, you know, we're literally just waiting to die. Um, I saw one thing, I think it might've been at a, 
I forget, maybe Cook County, but they were like, they gave us letters, like paper, so we could like write to our loved ones because. Like a last, like a last letter. Something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to think about like the response to this in terms of disposability. We have to think about, you know, this idea of victimhood and this idea of vulnerability and this idea of disposability and people are not all vulnerable the same way. Yes. Um, I, I see like a really, like I saw like a really big upswell of like support and concern when, you know, turns out that like children can actually get sick and die from this or younger right. people can actually get sick and die from this as opposed to just the old people who were like at the end of their life. And so were like a reasonable sacrifice or like right. disabled and chronically ill people who, um, just didn't matter as, as workers, as people, as anything to the state and to kind of society in general. And, you know, it's been really interesting and also really heartbreaking to kind of look at and listen to disability justice organizers who mm. have been like, if y'all would have listened to us for the past however right. many years, there are so many ways that, um, so much of the, these ideas around distancing or like working from home or just accommodations in, in general. Um, so many deaths could have been avoided and yet, you know, here we are trying to scramble when, you know, we're not listening to folks who, who kind of live particular lives who are excluded and are living certain lives on a regular basis who continue to try to be heard within our organizing and other communities and just continuously get ignored. And, you know, I, yeah. I mean, something that I was reading that was from medical anthropology, too, was also like uh, the cholera breakout in Latin America. I think that was like in the 80s or 90s. And they were talking mm. about different communities' responses to what the government was trying to initiate, whether it be, you know, washing your hands more or whether it be staying inside. Uh, and there seemed to be uh, a lot of analysis coming out about sort of like how a lot of people who have traditionally distrusted the government, who have always thought that they were trying to literally wipe them out in a lot of different ways, uh, resist a lot of these other measures that governments take to try and control disease. And uh, part of it is because there's like a, a conflation, right, between like the experts and the medical people who are like, this is what you need to do to sort of like uh, not spread the infection of the disease, and then the impl- implementation from the state. Mm. And for the simple fact that it's coming from the state and they've traditionally tried to wield power over people and destroy entire communities, there's, uh, you know, at least in that example on Latin America, there's been a lot of resistance to it. Uh, I guess my other question is, like, uh, of the different responses across the United States in the black community, like, what is the range of responses that you see people? Are people mostly... uh, like resistant because it's the, because it's coming from the government? Are there certain sections of the community that are much more for it? It's, it's varied, you know, um, at least what I've kind of seen on, on social media, there are people who are turning to conspiracy theories and thinking about how the disease is spread and talking about like 5g towers because right. of radioactivity. And I don't, I don't actually understand how that works, but whatever do you um there are other people who are really really nervous so i think let let me back up let me say first that when we're talking about public health and epidemiology we're talking about um 
population health. We're talking about mm-hmm. the maintenance of a healthy population, which necessarily becomes a state narrative, which right. necessarily becomes about um, a workforce. Um, That's really interesting. In medical sociology, there is kind of this historical, uh, th- these kind of different paradigms of, of medicine. You know, initially there was like bedside medicine because, you know, you would have doctors come to your home and take care of people. And mm-hmm. then with the creation of the clinic and the hospital, you have hospital medicine. Um, and that's where you kind of have Foucault starting to talk about the mm-hmm. invention of the clinic and the function of the clinic in in, in surveillance, in, in kind of, what did he call it, a physical anatomy, mm-hmm. um, the maintenance of a, of a body. Um, and then you have the paradigm that we're in now, which is called um, surveillance medicine, which uh, there's no longer this binary between health and unhealth. There is now this spectrum of unhealth. Interesting. Um, so you are constantly expected to kind of manage um to manage your condition and the man, the successful quote unquote management of your own health ties into your kind of civic duties and your civic responsibilities. Uh Um, your ability to successfully participate in the health, uh, in the, the health or the workforce, um, in service of the functioning economy, like so much of the discourse around, you know, when we come out of, uh, quarantine, you know, Donald Trump has been talking about like, we need to save the economy. So you have, this like militarized language around fighting a virus in service of this like economic system. So there's this like really fucked up way that public health and epidemiology becomes this tool, uh, in service of racial capitalism. Wow. So people who are hip to the game are like, well, (laughs) I'm not going to listen to what the state is saying because, I understand the ways that the state sees me as being expendable. Right. Um, but unfortunately, um, the state is re- responsible for relief efforts on a mass scale. So you have the state like co-opting and perverting the good stuff that is coming from experts. Right. Um, and then gagging. So like the state is also literally gagging um, people in the CDC and the NIH who might disagree with its official strategy. So wow. you also have this like silencing of like actual health experts. That's um, so it can be really difficult for folks to get access to, um, proper, um, health information. So I don't even necessarily fault people for turning to conspiracies when we are in this moment where it can be so difficult to figure out exactly what is good and useful information and what is not. Yeah. And then historically the things that, uh, black people have been told are conspiracies that is this idea of being tested on right. um, have not been conspiracies. So you have, what is it like the, the federal prison bureau or whatever, buying $60,000 worth of hydroxychloroquine to do what exactly? Right. Um, are they unofficially testing it on prisoners by giving it to people who are sick and then seeing what happens and then kind of recording what happens as a kind of unofficial drug trial, which by the way, um, would be illegal um, and a violation of like medical ethics conventions. Um, You also have that drug trial that Mike Pence declared he was running at the Henry Ford hospital in Detroit. Um, And, you know, there was a lot of information, like people were like, are they testing it on patients? Are they testing it on um, frontline workers? But it's like a, a test on like to see if it is a preventative drug for people who are caring for folks who have COVID-19. And it's, there's just like, 
But then it's also like, why are they even running this drug trial? Because right. people have been like, it's completely inconclusive as either for treatment or prevention. So, but then we found out that like the president has like a stake in the drug manufacturer that makes the drug. Right. So there are all of these like interests within the state. There's all of this, there's this like information flying back and forth where like the good information is being blocked then you have like classed barriers to people being able to stay yeah. home or to or to or to buy resources you have people who are hoarding toilet paper and other essential resources so people can't get them it's just like it's a perfect story and then you just have like healthcare being unaffordable period um right and like testing is free but treatment is not right <laughs> And so you, it, it, to me just really all comprises like a perfect storm of, of like the worst possible of everything. Um, you know, people are trying their best to stay home, but it's like, I was reading something about the number of, of transit workers in New York city who are sick. Um, the number of people in the U S postal service who are sick and the government is start is like, we're not going to bail up the U S postal service. (laughs) Like, which means that like people can't get medicine or people can't get whatever they need to get. So it's just like, I don't, it's, it's a mess. I mean, there, there, I mean, we could probably go on for a long time about all the things that the sort of like the government's lacking to do and whatever, whatever. On the other end of the spectrum, though, I do see a lot of people in regu- like everyday people stepping up to try and take care of the people in their own neighborhoods, the people in their own families. Uh, is there anything that you see that's particularly inspiring to you? Um, just, just the number of like mutual aid projects that have sprung up has been really um, exciting is the wrong word, but like really right. good and really positive to see. Um, and I think on one hand, you know, I'm not going to do the thing of like, ha 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 anarchists are right. The state sucks, <laughs> but, but I am heartened by, especially when we're looking at like how deeply dissatisfied so many people are at the prospect of having to choose between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Like I am heartened yeah. by this idea of people understanding that like the electoral system is this kind of like farcical system of choice um, that the state ultimately sees you as being expendable and that we are kind of the only hope that we have. And so yeah. all of these like campaigns to decarcerate um, prisons and all of these just like basic campaigns to help people get groceries and medical supplies and whatever, um, these fundraisers to help small businesses stay afloat um, have been really positive. But at the same time, it's also really fucked up to see people have to depend on like GoFundMe's to like pay right. for medical bills, to pay right. for with all of these deaths, funeral um, expenses for funerals, to yeah. pay for all of these things that should either be free or should be, or we should be paid like well more than enough yeah. um, on a very basic level to be able to afford on our own. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's so there's gen- like a bittersweetness to that. That's generally the strategy that the state is used to as like uh, nonprofits, volunteers, all these other type of uh, sort of like care work being done by people in their own communities while we also work full time jobs or right now not work at all right. and not have any money. Right. Uh, and we're doing what the state 
pretends like it ought to do, but never does, you know? Right. I mean, it's been, it's been interesting to see, I mean, not to pretend that like Europe is perfect, but it's been interesting to see state responses in Europe, like Spain nationalized all of its hospitals like very quickly. Wow. Um, and was just like, we're just, what is a private hospital in a medic in a, in a global health emergency? Um, and it's been so, you know, it's been really incredible to see, you know, on the continent, like these, the ways that these networks of like community health workers have been activated. It's been interesting. It's been so cool to see like in Vietnam and South Korea, like how the testing, the whole kind of testing and quarantine structure has come together. Um, and then it's just like, you get to the United States and you're just like, Oh, like, like they're just not doing anything. And like, they've had information about this for like months before people started getting, started dying. Yeah. Um, and there was even like, I think that there was like some pandemic task force that was left over by the Obama administration that Trump just didn't use or didn't utilize. And I think that it was dismantled like a couple of years ago and it was like Department of Home- Homeland Security like couldn't even find any of the documents. <laughs> They're just like, so we don't need was, this. They're just, so there was a framework for this, but because of whatever like partisan or I don't even know what's going on with the president, but whatever like arrogance that there, he just refused to use it. That's um, crazy. And instead of making, you know, all of this protective equipment available to frontline workers and sending out checks and doing whatever needed to be done. He's just like literally blocking masks and ventilators from going to like European countries into Barbados. Um, and it's just, it's as someone who's like studying genocide and eugenics, like it's actually just really horrifying to see, um, how it's kind of unfolding and, and, and just like the blatant disregard for human life. Yeah. Do you, do you see a lot of, parallels i guess like the par- like the parallels could be divided into like a few different categories but one is like uh rhetorically like the language mm-hmm. that governments are using to sort of narrate the pandemic now in relationship to other projects of eugenics or of genocide uh and on and, you know and the the category would be like actual actions like blocking sanitary sort of like uh devices and stuff like that Um, I think that for me, the most striking and the most horrifying is, um, I was reading this story about a pharmacist who like cut off, like, I think maybe a lupus patient supply of like hydroxychloroquine or some drug and was like, thank you for your sacrifice. Wow. Um, and so, or, or, or like, you know, apparently this heartwarming story of this really old person who was like, don't give me a ventilator. Just this idea of people... Uh, of, of people that we understand as being like the most disposable, um, giving up their lives in, in quote unquote sacrifice of the healthy. Um, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, the first people who died in the Nazi Holocaust were disabled people in the Nazis euthanasia program. Um, it called the T4 action campaign and, yeah, I, I think that like the way that the elderly people, disabled folks, people who have chronic illnesses have been talked about as opposed to like engaged in kind of thinking about what their needs are is incredibly it's like eugenics one oh one, right? Yeah, it's like totally. when we're talking about herd immunity, 
those are like the antelopes that are scraggling at the back that are definitely going to get eaten by a lion. Um, they're just not. Think, they're just not in the gene pool anymore. Basically, they're not in the. They're not strong enough. They're not right. good enough. Whatever. And it's like in this way, it's like disability or whatever becomes like not only a physiological but also like a moral failing. Yeah. Um, this really fucked up way because like you are not actively contributing to the health of the country or the health right. of the population. Right. Um, I think that to me is 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 definitely. Um, the most striking. And that's what we see a lot of too, again, like to bring it back to sort of like the biological and social stuff is like a conflation of like the wellness of the body, right? And the wellness of the community and the wellness of the economy. And Mm -hmm. you can't have one, in their logic, you can't have one without the other. And that's what really like terrifies me the most is Mm -hmm. is the inability to sort of separate the two. It's like if it takes the capitalist economy to crash, for everyone else to survive and be healthy, I would say let it burn. <laughs> you know, and 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 it's just it was re- it's all it's, it was really scary to to listen to the way that they're talking about the economy like it's like a living thing, right? Um, like we will let people die to save the economy. Um, I was just it's like well we're already in recession, right? So let's just. <laughs> Like, let's, let's just start from there. Like, we're not going to save it anytime soon. Right. Um, so let's just, and also like, you can't have a functioning economy if your workforce is dead. Right. Um, and also the thing that we're not talking about enough about coronavirus is that, um, it'll take like roughly like twice as long for an individual person to like get better after they've been sick from something this, if they have like really severe, um, symptoms, but also, like, there's been some research that demonstrates that depending on the severity of, like, the case that you – of, like, your case, um, it could leave, like, lasting damage and scarring in your lungs. Oh, I didn't know that. So now, you know, here is a whole other set of, like, health concerns that need to be attended to. Right. Um, like, there, there is no economy without a healthy workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and that's why not to get like weird and capitalist, but it's like, you see all of these little like projects where bosses are like, well, I gave, I increased everyone's starting salary to $70,000 and only made people come in three days a week and productivity went up. And it's like, well, yes, exactly. If you ensure (laughs) that people are healthy, they're going to, they're going to work better. Yeah. That's dead on. Um, you know. But I mean, I guess uh, more specifically for other people who are listening who maybe don't, you know, uh, like there's a core group of people who are really kind of like well versed in revolutionary politics, in black liberation movement in the United States, maybe some medical stuff, sociology stuff. Uh, maybe you could talk about sort of like uh, the mechanisms of like uh, health repression that the black community faces that other communities uh, like white people or even like uh, Asian Pacific Islander people don't ha- face the same challenges traditionally in getting medical care. Uh, Cause you mentioned like redlining earlier, all of these other kind of structural issues. Uh, if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on, on those actual, like the mechanisms and structures that are used that makes that stratification of care possible. I mean, so I guess if we're kind of thinking about like, so for example, you know, people are like, well, black folks are like at higher risk of cardiovascular illnesses because of high levels of obesity and blah, 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 because they're not eating healthy and whatever. 
But when you look at the ways that um, residential areas are structured, um, we have what is called food apartheid. Like food desert does not even cut it. Like it's food apartheid where you have, you know, areas where, you know, maybe the only thing that you can access is like corners, a corner store or um, another smaller store that just doesn't offer an extensive range of produce. But then also when we're talking about folks who are working class, we know that like time is a really important variable in people's lives. And so you simply don't necessarily have the time to like prepare for yourself, like healthy food that might take longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of like structural, uh, that kind of structural barrier to to certain kinds of food. I mean, also when you look at like uh, gentrification and like areas that, um, have been gentrified, like you'll see certain areas that will have like a Whole Foods and a Trader Joe's, like and a something else in yeah. the same place. Um, and then another area that has literally nothing. Right. Um, so it's like, those are some of the kind, that's like a particular factor in thinking about like diet. Um, also with the redlining, like I said, you've got like this stuff about like pollution. This is an issue with like black, uh, like heavily populated, like black areas in the Bay. Yeah, um, like Richmond. You, Richmond's a big one for that. You know, um, I don't, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. Like, I know all the things, but it's just not coming to me. It's just like the the ways that like cities are literally. Cr- con- oh, but then you also have like the structure of medical racism. You've got yeah. the ways that um, uh, it's called. It's described as like the superhumanization bias, huh. um, where emergency care providers. Uh, because of this historical trope around black people having higher pain thresholds, like will not give, yeah, will not, will not give, um, painkillers or there's like a lower rate of like prescribing certain kind of painkillers, or there's this way that like a lot of black people are not believed. And so, uh, it takes a really long time for people to get diagnosed and properly treated with certain, um, kind of chronic or acute health issues. Um, there was a black woman who died in the UK. I'm forgetting her name because she called and was like, I'm really sick. Mm. And they literally told her like, you are not a priority. And she died at home. Wow. Um, there's just this whole, you know, and there's this really great book, uh, medical apartheid by Harriet Washington that just talks about this really extensive, um, history of, of testing medical treatments, uh, and procedures like on black people. So when we were looking at those two French doctors that were talking about potentially going and testing vaccines and whatever on Africans, um, the United States, like we have to think like the United States is a colonial project and it has the exact same history of doing those tests on, on black people. And so in addition to all of these structural barriers outside of the hospital, you have all of these really horrible, um, experiences of like neglect and and Uh violence and whatever else like within the hospital setting Uh which leads to high rates of mortality or um there's a thing called um, iatrogenic conditions which are actually conditions that occur as a result of medical treatment um and maybe for our listeners who don't know the history of that like the most famous one that i know is the tuskegee experiment Right. Can you, maybe you can elaborate on that and talk about like what that was, what people's reaction to it was. So the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiment, it was basically uh, 
they were they wanted to see um, they wanted to see the entirety of 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 the symptoms associated with syphilis. And so it's like, we think about syphilis as something that you like maybe get and then get antibiotics for and get rid of, but syphilis can like lead to brain damage Mm -hmm. um, and you die from it. It's like, it's incredibly painful and just really horrible. And so they were injecting um, black people with it um, without their knowledge and without their consent. and obviously that ended pretty appallingly. And like, that's part of like the pantheon of, mm-hmm. of um, like health things that we know about. And there was, or of, of, of like medical ethical violations that eventually yeah. led to, to universities and, and medical centers, like adopting um, protocols to protect subjects. There was, and also actually someone who was associated with Tuskegee was also a part of the same kind of trials in Guatemala. Um, <laughs> So those two, they, I listen. Learning about medical ethics. Sucks. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, could you? And so it's like you have that connect. Another thing, another thing that we we learn about, we hear about a lot is like Henrietta Lacks, who was a black woman who was going in for treatment, and they took out um, a piece of cervical tissue, and they um, used the tissue for all kinds of other things, um, and she was never told about it. Um, so, but I mean, is it say? I mean, I'm assuming it's safe to say that like part of the willingness of the medical community uh, to be able to experiment on other types of people is the view that the people are subhuman and it's not really, yeah. it's not worth uh, gaining consent from them because it doesn't matter what happens to them. Absolutely. I mean, so the guy who is kind of the the father of like modern gynecology, Jane Marion Sims, he. I think like invented the surgery for like this, whatever, it's not, it's not relevant, but basically he was running experiments on these enslaved black women. And he was doing this particular procedure without anesthesia when anesthesia had been invented. And so he was running these experiments without anesthesia on these enslaved women. And then obviously was running them normally on the white women. Um, or you have like all of the, there was one study that was done or one trial that was done in a prison, I think in Indiana. Um, and, and the thing that's really messy about prisoners is that it's not to take away people's agency, but prisoners cannot consent to anything. Right. Um, this, the simple, the simple fact of their being in detention and incarcerated, like is a violation of someone's consent, just as like right. enslaved people could not consent. Um, but you, they are put in the situation where it's like, okay, you're being given this medication. You don't necessarily know what it does, but it might help you, but you don't have access to medical treatment otherwise. Right. It's like, what? And you don't so, have a choice. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, you could say no, Right. Like, technically you could say no, right. but it's like, you know, when you're given an offer, you can't refuse. Like, do you actually have the agency to say no? no. Um, so yeah, it's this, it's this, this history of people being subhuman. You have the whole like, uh, pseudoscience of like phrenology that held that people were inherently criminal and inherently devious and whatever, and were understood as being, yeah, less than human. And so perfectly appropriate, um, mm-hmm. to test on. Um, and so that is kind of the context within which, you know, the French doctors were saying we can test them in Africa just as HIV drugs were tested on sex workers um, uh, and thinking that that's an OK thing to say. Right. Uh, 
I mean, thus far in the conversation, we've talked a lot about sort of like the um, like the the way that racially care is distributed. Do you notice anything in the arena of like uh, gender also being playing a part in like, you know, are black women dying more in the hospital system than they than they would before COVID? Like, what is the response or how, how is that received? I haven't seen actually as much about a gender breakdown as I have about racial breakdown. But from what I understand about like black women not being believed about their pain um, and just generally taken less seriously, I would guess that there is like a, a pretty maybe disproportionate um, number of, of, of black women mortalities. But I, I that's just my own speculation. Um, but that story of that woman um, in England who like called and was literally told that she was not a priority is like really haunting me. Uh, because we know this kind of history around like racialized misogyny and how black women are consistently like, you know, treated, uh, so badly (laughs) to say the least. I mean, cause I've heard other stories about like the inception of Planned Parenthood and stuff like that. And, and that involving uh, experimentation on other women of color, but I don't remember the details of the story. I think that there's, it's like complicated. So it's like, I think that was it Margaret Sanger, I think is her name, or like, I'm sure that Planned Parenthood was a part of a eugenicist something. Right. Um, as all things probably are, (laughs) but, uh, there are kind of contemporary anti-choice people who invoke that legacy as like, they'll, they'll have these posters that are like the most dangerous place for a black child to be is like a black woman's womb or something like that. And will like exploit that history of, of like sterilization or, or like forced abortions or whatever. Um, in order to push this like broader kind of anti-cis woman, anti-reproductive autonomy, um, narrative, uh, like there's definitely that whole history of like women being sterilized in, um, Puerto Rico. Um, there's definitely this whole politic of like also indigenous women being sterilized and like children being forcibly adopted out as a part of this like assimilation, um, cultural and like regular genocidal kind of model. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's, you know, it's really common to, for like white people to like exploit like legitimate fears, um, and traumas in non-white communities for their own goals. Like with the way that, um, white anti-vaxxers were exploiting like black fears of Tuskegee to be like, we'll see like this actually happened to them. So, like we're not being paranoid because this actually happens. It's like, yeah, it happens to black people, not (laughs) rich white anti-vaxxers that are in fucking Marin and and Berkeley. Um, (laughs) Playing games. Like it's not, no, (laughs) it's not the same. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about like uh, different mutual aid projects, like in terms of, um, like analysis, like radical analysis about sort of the way that the black community is affected, uh, mm-hmm. COVID-19 in particular, but just in general in American society. Uh, are there, is there anything that you think people should take into consideration as we like sort of begin the, the closeout process for the interview? I think that people should 
really, um, should really, really study the, the Black Panther community health model. Um, I think that it's really important to understand that they were not only just providing a critic, an urgently needed service, although that in itself would have been important enough, but that the provision of that service was itself a tool of political education. Um, and that I think it's really important for mutual aid to be politicized, um, because it's, it's, I've been seeing it coming from like nonprofits and I'm like charity is like charity giving is not mutual aid. And as good as these like fundraisers and as good as these like grant funds are like, that's not mutual. That's not what I understand to be mutual aid, although they are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it's really important to, to study the ways that non-white communities have supported themselves um, and supported one another in these times of like emergency and even outside of emergency, um, in the study and in, in, in our development of understanding mutual aid, because I think that it forces us to get a much clearer understanding of what communities actually need. Um, and I think that we strengthen our revolutionary political programs when we are not only, you know, addressing people's not only addressing like not the needs that we perceive that people have, but that we have enough of a knowledge of communities and enough of a, an existing relationship with people's communities that we can, we can like respond to the, the, the kind of nuanced needs that might arise within those communities. Um, I think that for me is really important. Otherwise we risk like, you know, what we understand as being mutual aid becoming like charity models of giving. Yeah. In this, like, um, and paternalistic that, and that is not sustainable. Like, that's not mutual. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's really important. Are there any projects in particular that you kind of want to give a shout out to in, in that regard? Oh, Lord. Um, I will think about it and we'll put links on the website because I'm sure. just You're fried. <laughs> I'm running out of okay. running out of brain space to remember the. All right. Well, I think that's all the stuff that I have. I really want to thank you again for like taking the time. It's good to see you. It's been a while since the last time I saw you. Uh, I hope you're doing okay out there. Doing all right. Yeah. Good to see you as well. I'd like to thank all of you who took the time to listen to our show and hope that you join us again. Uh, we'll be covering a wide range of topics in the future from the rent strikes to different mutual aid projects. Or if you have a topic you would like to be featured on the show, please don't hesitate to drop us a line on Instagram at roar underscore A-R-A, or visit our website at roar-conference.com. Again, thanks for listening, and hope to hear from you soon.